You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hey, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center, And today, I'm joined by my lovely and talented co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. So last night, I was out unmasked in Nashville, and I almost felt naked because, you know, the CDC just came out with these new rules about... Sorry, every time you say naked, I'm just like, it's so Okay, that's my Southern accent coming. (laughs) Naked. Naked Naked. as a jaybird, I felt like when I was out in public. The way you say naked is N-E-K-K-I-D, and it's just perfect to listen to. (laughs) It just makes me laugh every time. I'd be a little bit offended, but I've been told that before by friends who are Southern. They're like, say that for us, Abby. You say it's so funny. So, okay, well, I'll, you know. So, okay, <laughs> I was naked. I felt naked as a jaybird. So w- tell me about what your experiences have been in the last few days now that we've not, or at least I assume in all your states, you're not wearing masks outdoors anymore or in restaurants. Is that correct? Well, I'm, um, I'm having like some adjustment disorder (laughs) going along with this, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, like there are times that I do still wear masks. Um, we, I went to my local grocery store yesterday. Um, and I still wore a mask. I would say probably about half of people were still masking and, It's one of those that I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Um, You know, there's part of me who I'm like, I'm immunized. I am fully immunized. I know that I've done my thing, what I'm comfortable doing. And I think mentally I'm having to transition to a point of people who are unimmunized, who are not masking, that they have to take responsibility for their decisions and that's free will. And that's, you know, living in the United States and all, all those wonderful things. Um, but it's, it's, it's a harder, I, I thought we were going to have more of a transition. Yeah, I did too. I, I was kind of surprised. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you're done. No more mask. I thought there would be more of a transition too. And granted, it's no more masks for people who are vaccinated, but we all know that there are people who are unvaccinated who are just not masking. Right. As I was walking the streets last night, I was thinking every other person statistically that passes me is not vaccinated. I'm vaccinated, but every right. other person probably is not. And so that's that's kind of, I'm, I'm having to do some like soul searching and doctor soul searching and, mm-hmm. you know, family soul searching. Like everybody's like, what should I do? And I'm like, oh, I haven't even figured that out for myself quite yet. You know, I, I still am enjoying the fact that I, you know, work in a medical field where masking is still appropriate and expected. Um, and it's, it's, it's taking me a little longer than I thought. But like I said, I didn't think it was going to be that quick. What about you, Carrie? So, I mean, we're a two-doc household. My husband is an intensive care physician for kids. And and we still have two small human beings in the house who are not a vaccine-eligible age yet. 
hopefully in September, that will change and the FDA will approve the mRNA vaccines for kids two years of age and older. Um, so we have kind of a different perspective in it. Like both, both adults are fully immunized and have been since really the second either of us got the opportunity to get, get poked. Um, but my concern is that right now, two thirds of the U.S. is not vaccinated. And Nevada just dropped its its masking mandate with the change in the CD, CDC uh, recommendations. Um, you know, that does not apply to healthcare situations. So whenever we're facing patients that you always have a mask on, both you and the patient, because that's just, you know, there's, there's too many other things at play there. Um, so at work, I'm still masking. Um, we don't tend to go out a whole lot, at least at this point, because... I'm still like, I know the data is good. I know that the vaccine works, but I don't want to expose my kids to anything. Um, and, and they still, we're still really strict about, they have to mask out in the world. And so, you know, as their parents were setting good, good modeling for the behavior we want from them. So we, we still mask too. And my suspicion is we're going to do that except for people who we know, you know, our close circle, who we know are fully vaccinated and who are taking the same kind of precautions are, we're still going to do that because, you know, the COVID long haulers are real. We don't have a whole lot of great data in kids. Um, when I look at it from a societal view, which is kind of my, how I look at it as a physician and as a parent, and as someone who is the wife of a pediatrician, um, you know, all those things, it's like, to me, it is the right thing to do. And so that's what I'll do, even if it's not super popular. And let me tell you, in Las Vegas, in 115 degree heat in the summer, it is not popular at all. <laughs> yeah, I normally am kind of in the middle of Texas. I can go in and out, you know, with a mask on. I did it all last year. It really wasn't an issue. But when I go to my clinic down in Corpus, which is along the coastline, and the humidity is so much higher, it's that's on, honestly the hardest time it is for me to stay masked is because it it definitely... I'm used to breathing in certain atmospheric conditions. Yeah. And when I go down there, it is, it is definitely a, a harder circumstance. Yeah. What do you think, Gabby? Yeah. You know, I don't really mind masking. I think we're going to continue to stay masked in our office and I'm fine with that. You know, I kind of feel like as physicians, we're sort of conditioned to do that. We didn't do it all the time, but we're, we're, we were pretty used to wearing masks before. So I really don't think it's a big deal one way or another, but I think for me now, my whole family is vaccinated. I know that, you know, if we've had the vaccine, you can still get COVID, but it's a lot less likely to be severe. So I'm still a little hesitant. I'm like you, Susan, I, I went to the grocery store and I went to Walgreens and I had my mask on. And actually quite a few people still had their mask on there too. But I, I suspect over the coming weeks, that's going to change a little bit. And so I don't know, I'm going to wear it sometimes. I'll wear it in the office all the time and I'll probably wear it out sometimes. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably going to fall by the wayside as the summer heat starts getting you know stronger and stronger. Yeah, I'm starting to think about we're going to take a trip this summer in August. And again, that's like three months away or two, two and a half months away. And as we all know, two and a half months in this day and age is like an eternity because you never know what's going to happen in that time frame. I mean, we we may have a, you know, resurgence again. Swing one way or the other. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, okay, are we going to do the N95 mask on the airplane again? And I'm like, yeah, we're probably into the N95 on the airplane again. Just 
I'm like, number one, I don't want to get anything else. And, you know, I, I totally, I, I think it's amazing what they've been able to do with air travel and that the, yeah. essentially the air is new, fresh air every like three seconds. It's absolutely amazing. It's probably better than what we're breathing in most of the buildings that we're in. That's right. Yeah. Um, but what I call prudent paranoia, but um, yeah, it'll be... <laughs> That's an amazing phrase. I love that. Prudent paranoia. Prudent paranoia. I really like that. Yeah, I think that's a good term. Yeah, you know, I think, you know what? That'd be really cool. You know, I do cricket. So it'd be cool to make a mask that says prudent paranoia on the outside of the mask, you know, and people, because people kind of look at you if you're wearing a mask, or I think they will in the coming days if you're still wearing a mask and nobody else is wearing one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I look at the, the, the numbers and, you know, in my husband's ICUs and in the, the area. And I'm like, you know, it, still one third of the ICU population is COVID patients. Yeah. So it's not gone. It's just not overwhelming like it was before, but it's still by no means gone. Unless you're in India. Unless you're in India, in which case, good luck and Godspeed. But prudent paranoia is a good phrase. I'm, I'm more than willing to let other people be the adventurous souls and we'll probably hang tight until kids can start getting it in September. And at that point, then I'll feel like, okay, you know, give it, give it maybe a little bit of time after that and give everyone who needs to be vaccinated the opportunity. And then I'll feel better about taking the masks off, but we'll see what the data shows. I mean, I'm willing to be data driven about this. Yeah. Two months is eons. So who knows what'll happen over the course of that time. All right. So today our topic is treatment options for premature ovarian failure. But we have a question first. Oh gosh, I forgot about the question. We spent so long on our topic. I forgot about the question. Okay. So what is our question then, Carrie? So, okay. So this patient writes in, we have male factor infertility. Um, Her husband had a varicocele repair that increased his sperm count, uh, but unfortunately it dropped after, after a little while. And the couple has done Clomid and IUI. However, they're noticing that the count is dropping considerably. And so most recently it was less than half a million total modal count with the IUI. Besides being overweight, husband's lifestyle is good. No, no major factors there. Um, she just doesn't feel, she said, I just feel like IVF is our only option, but I just don't want to because it's expensive and I ovulate regularly. Is there any other testing we can do because his count is not in the regular range anymore despite the surgery? And I will note that she writes at one point at its peak, it was about 19 million um, modal count when they were doing... IUIs, but um, they were hoping it was going to increase more than that. But unfortunately, it just dropped really pretty rapidly and pretty harshly. So how many IUIs have they done? Did she mention that? So the number of IUIs that she did, it looks like they just did IUI number two this past month. And that's when it went down to 0.4 million uh, modal count. Uh, so it sounds like it was like 19 and then went down to 0.4. That's a big drop. So she said surgery was August of 2020. So before surgery, he was at 3.4 million and 1.2 modal. And now he's at 19 million and 3.4 million modal, um, which was exciting. But we was we were hoping it was going to increase more than that. You got to have moving sperm. <laughs> moving yeah. sperm is important. Uh, one concern, you know, just thinking of, uh, I know you, it sounds like you want to avoid IVF if possible. Some, my first concern is how much obesity are we we dealing with? You, you know, are we are we talking about somebody who, you know, has 20, 30 extra pounds or 100, 150. Mm-hmm. I misread that. I misread that. Overall, 
he's not overweight. I missed Oh, that. okay. That is my fault. Why would that matter, Susan, though? Well, because, you know, fat tissue produces estrogen. Estrogen counteracts testosterone. And we have all seen guys with really low sperm counts that really are just attributed to that physiological phenomenon. And having some substantial weight loss can absolutely have a huge impact. But if that's not the case, unfortunately, you know, I, I think we, we really are at a point, you know, if you only have about 3 million total modal sperm cells, it's not that IVF can't or, or IUI can't work. It's just, it's not likely to. Um, and if you're really wanting to do something that's going to have a reasonable chance of success, probably moving towards IVF is going to be your best route. I I'm, I always say I want to do the least invasive, but the most appropriate treatment. And sometimes that least invasive, but most appropriate is IVF. And that's kind of what I'm hearing in this scenario, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think we all try and start out with looking at, okay, are there things that he may have that we can correct? And so, you know, weights one, you know, if you're a big time smoker, probably the bad things that you do, it's probably good to cut down on those things. Multivitamins, lifestyle changes, don't sit in hot tubs, don't ride a bike hours on end. All of that, don't, ex- don't exercise to the extreme. All those things are lifestyle changes that can be made. Sometimes men have varicoceles, which it sounds like your husband did, your partner did, and that was corrected. But at some point you come to the bottom line that if, like Susan said, if the total modal count is not above a certain number, you know, you can continue to do IUIs. And in fact, I had a patient a few weeks ago that said, well, I don't understand why you won't let us do any IUIs. And I said, no, it's not that I'm not letting you do them. I said, we can do as many as we want, but I just I just don't think it's the right treatment. You're just not going to get pregnant. You're going to waste your money and your time doing that. And so I think it's kind of unfortunately at that point where if you went to 20 different fertility doctors, they would probably all agree that it's time to proceed with IVF because it's just there's, for male factor fertility, you either do inseminations or you do IVF. And I think you're at the point where it's time to do IVF. And I don't know that any additional testing is going to make a difference in here. I mean, when you think about, all right, what if we ordered a male hormone profile or DNA fragmentation or a karyotype or AZF microdeletions? Like those things are all reasonable tests in male factor infertility. However, not, not really in this case necessarily? I mean, you. I guess you could get a male hormone profile and see if, if you gave gonadotropins. I would have thought the profile would have already been done since he had a varicocele repair. Yeah. I would assume so. And, and I would assume that after that profile, they would have said, okay, there's really no additional medications we can give to improve his count. I mean, this sounds like it's just, this is how he's made. And so this is what you got to deal with. And while it's frustrating that it sounds like she doesn't have any direct problems, it takes two to get a baby. So if she doesn't have any direct issues, well, you know, that's, it's just kind of part and parcel of, of being a couple, like, you know, you, you do what you got to do. And um, the goodwill factor about continuing to do IUIs is important as well, because if you're only two IUIs in, that means that you haven't had to see very many of those periods that come after an IUI. And when I first started, I didn't give this the same amount of importance that I do now that I've been doing this for a while. But seeing those periods every month after an IUI, when you feel like, well, there's sperm there, there's eggs there, I ovulated, my lining's good, you know, and it didn't work. 
like that wears you down. And one of the biggest dangers we see in fertility treatment is someone who gets frustrated and walks away mm-hmm. and we don't see them for another several years. Then we have an egg problem too. <laughs> then we got an egg problem too. The sperm problem hasn't gotten away, gone away. We do have an egg problem. And so the cheapest, most effective treatment, even when that treatment itself is expensive, it is much cheaper to start with that than it is to keep doing something that doesn't work and is very unlikely to. Yeah, it just breeds a lot of frustration and anxiety. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting to get a different result. And I think this is a good example of you could do a few more IUIs and you might get pregnant, but it's not real likely. Best chance would be to do IVF. Yeah. So on that note, now finally, we're going to talk about (laughs) our topic of the day, which is treatment options for premature ovarian failure. And we talked about this in one of our previous episodes. We talked about the diagnosis of premature ovarian failure, and we promised that we would talk about treatment options. So here we are now. So Susan, get us started on our topic of the day. So um, first of all, we have to realize that there's there's two different paths. And I kind of think of it as the same paths we think of with our ladies with PCOS or polycystic ovaries. It's the I'm not getting pregnant this moment path and for my general health and well-being and the I want to have a baby path. And so kind of starting off with the general health and well-being part of the path is that realizing that if you truly have POI or premature ovarian insufficiency, that your body's meant to have some estrogen and progesterone for usually an average of 10 to 20 more years. Uh (laughs) And you can have some serious health implications like developing early heart disease, early bone loss, osteoporosis, those types of things. If you don't get that hormone replacement through some sort of supplement, you know, sometimes um, you're REI will give you birth control pills. Sometimes your REI may give you some estrogen pills or creams or things like that. And with some other type of progesterone to kind of counterbalance it because it's important for it to be counterbalanced if you have a uterus. But that's important. The average age of menopause is 51. Okay. That's natural menopause. Um, Women typically live longer than men. (laughs) And there are some like hormonal reasons because of it. And so maintaining that balance is important. So Carrie, what would you say to someone who says, okay, I get it. You know, I don't make hormones now. I'm having hot flashes. I'm 30. I don't feel so great. Or I'm 35, but I'm really worried about the risk of hormone replacement therapy at age 35. What what would you tell that patient? So Hormone replacement therapy got a really bad rap in the early 2000s with the Women's Health Initiative um, study that came out, which the concept of that was great because they were looking at what is the risk of putting women on hormone therapy past the age of menopause. However, the execution was questionable. And so there are, I mean, when I look at my textbooks as I'm writing lectures for my med students and my residents, you know, there are whole chapters devoted to to parsing out why that study really wasn't done very well because they they took it took the use of those hormones out of context. And as a result of that came all of these really scary risks of you're going to get blood clots, you're going to have strokes, you're going to have higher risk of cancers, like on and on, a really, really scary risk. And so as a result, when that came out, a ton of women who are on hormonal replacement therapy dropped it because they thought it was terrible. Well, what we have found out since by studies that were done really quite well is that 
when you continue on with hormone therapy, when someone should be getting those hormones and when there's not a big drop and then rebound, those risks are no longer as risky. And so to speak to what Susan was saying, where women who are in their 30s, their bodies are designed to have those hormones. You are supposed to have those hormones there. And if you don't, you you see a, a premature it's almost a premature aging effect because your bones mm-hmm. start acting like they're 20, 30 years older than they are. They start to decrease. Your tissue is not as um, supple. That refers to quite a few areas of, of tissue. It impacts your you know, your ability to have a sex life, impacts health of the breasts, health of the brain, You know, all these different things, your ability to sleep because you're not getting hot flashes that are just awful. Um, And so when someone says, well, I'm really worried about the risks of hormone therapy when I'm 35 or 30 or 25 or 21, depending on what the circumstances are, it's when you look at the risk benefits, you know, yes, anytime you have hormones, you are going to run the risk of of all of the things that happen, Um, blood clots, stroke, you know, those types of things. However, you are running considerably higher risks by not having it. And you really don't have a hugely increased risk of all of those things when you are just restoring those hormone levels to normal. And so, yes, they have to be done appropriately. You cannot have just plain estrogen. If you are a a personal owner of a uterus, you have to have progesterone on there. You can't just have plain estrogen. Doesn't work. You're you're you are increasing your risk of cancer, and that's true of really any situation. But that's why we give the progesterone with it to mitigate that, and it really does a very good job of it. And so, you know, so really, you're returning to normal. You're not supplementing above that. One thing to say too about that Women's Health Initiative study, it was and actually a very well done randomized perspective study, probably the largest study that's ever going to be done in our lifetimes ever again to look at hormone replacement therapy. It was a great study, but as Carrie suggested, the problem was it was targeted at the wrong people. So the average age of women in that study were 60. Well, if you put a 60-year-old next to a 30-year-old, you can just tell by looking at them, they're different. And they're also different hormonally too. And so, you know, it's different to give a young woman in her 30s, like Carrie said, some sort of hormone replacement therapy. And, you know, many women in their 30s routinely use birth control pills. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the estrogen and birth control pills is it's probably five times stronger than the estrogen that we give women in hormone for hormone replacement therapy. We know too now that any amount of estrogen in women is better than none at all. And so, you know, osteoporosis is one of those things that it won't kill you, but it'll certainly limit your act or, um, minimize your activities of daily living, just make it less comfortable for you to be alive as you get older and older. And so you should be building bone density up to age 30. And if you're starting to lose it because your hormones are shutting down, it's probably not a good thing. So, you know, even birth control pills are reasonable to go on if you're not thinking about getting pregnant. If you're thinking about getting pregnant, and I'll, Susan, I'm going to hand it off to you. Sometimes we think about cycling people on estrogen and progesterone and doing other things to help them get pregnant. So what would you, what would you recommend? So in women with premature ovarian insufficiency, realize that most of these women are not going to be able to conceive using their own eggs. Okay. Now there's about an 8% chance of pregnancy lifetime um, for women who have POI. And in most cases, those are going to be spontaneous pregnancies that us going and working the magic we normally do on our daily basis, those interventions usually aren't going to have a big impact 
Okay. There, there are exceptions to the rule. We've had exceptions to that rule on our podcast. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we, we love it when those things happen, but we also want to understand that when we say 8% lifetime chance of pregnancy, that's a, that's a relatively low number. Yeah. That's not per month. That's lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, um, most women with POI are going to need to consider something like either donor egg or donor embryo. And again, um, you know, that's the right thing for some people. It's not the right thing for others, but if a woman wants the chance to carry a pregnancy experience, delivery, all of those types of things, those things are going to give you fantastic chances of success. And we have more availability now of donor eggs and even donor embryos than we probably ever have in history. So Carrie, if you if somebody's listening to us today that's not listened to any of our other any of our other podcasts, which you know we have a we've talked about this a few other times. If somebody's listening for the first time today, tell us a little bit about the pros of um, using donor eggs and donor embryos. And then Susan, you can tell us something about the cons of using donor eggs and donor embryos. So the pros of using donor eggs, um, you can choose your donor and you pick out the qualities that are most important to you. Hair color, eye color, uh, ethnicity, education level, whatever it is, it's important. And we medically screen them and then we put them through the IVF process. And one of the biggest pros is that we can use your partner's sperm um, or the sperm donor of your choice. And so you get to have more influence and impact on how that embryo is made. Success rates are very high because donors are between, typically between the age of about 21 and you know 30 or so, sometimes 33, 34. And from there, their, their success rates using their eggs are really quite high. Um, and so you go through that process and you're very likely to get enough embryos to create the size family you want. Um, with donor embryos, the advantage of those in particular is that those embryos are already created and someone has already achieved a family using typically that batch of embryos. So you you typically have a little bit more information. Now, with a donated embryo, you don't necessarily get to choose. And Susan, I think I'm stepping on your stuff, so I'm going <laughs> to but backtrack. With a donated embryo, the embryo is already created. And so all you have to do is prepare the uterus for transfer. And sometimes that preparation can be more involved, but, um, but a lot of the work has already been done. So is there a cost benefit, Carrie? Huge, usually, <laughs> um, because really the main thing with a donor that the the higher cost with that is associated with finding the donor, medical screening, going through all of the FDA process, as well as having her go through the IVF cycle and reimbursing her for the risk that she is undertaking because she's taking a fair amount of medications and undergoing a procedure. With a donor embryo, really you're you're paying for the prep of your uterus and, and typically the FDA testing that has gone into to, to that donor embryo such that it can be used in someone other than the couple who created it. Um, and so typically it's a much, much less expensive process. So Susan, I maybe gave you the harder question. So what are the disadvantages of using donor eggs and donor embryos? One of them is going to be cost, as um, Carrie alluded to. 
Um, but realistically, the cost of donor egg nowadays, whether you're using a fresh donor or a frozen donor, is going to be relatively comparable to doing your own IVF cycle with maximum dosages of medicine. So what are, what are we talking cost here then, Susan, roughly? I would say cost is going to be somewhere between, realistically, between twenty dollars to $30,000, depending on your region of the country, how many, whether you do fresh versus frozen, how many actual eggs you end up um, purchasing, th- those types of things. So um, that that's going to be the biggest thing when you look at donor embryo, as Carrie mentioned, the the cost is going to be significantly less. I think the relative cost of a donor embryo is going to be somewhere between probably two to $3,000 per embryo, um, plus the cost of your embryo transfer. Um, Now, another um, kind of downfall of, of donor embryos, a lot of programs are going to require you to do like a home study and apply to get selected. Not all programs are like that. Um, but there are some available um, that do that do require things like that. Um, it's not necessarily your biologic child, you know, and to some people that is very, very important to other people. It's not. And actually for our listeners know that whether it's okay to you or not okay to you can change. (laughs) And it's okay for that to change. Um, You know, most people don't come into our offices saying, I want to use donor egg. So to be clear, donor embryo is what's the biology of donor embryo versus donor egg? So donor egg, it's somebody else's egg and usually your partner's sperm, whereas donor embryo is the egg and sperm is from another couple who have done IVF themselves. They've completed their family size that they so desire, but they would like to give their remaining embryos a chance at life. So are there other children out there that may have these gametes? There most likely are other children out there um, that have these gametes. And so, um, you know, there's always the possibility that, you know, your child may um, decide they want to come in contact, you know, through, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry or whatever the um, testing du jour is that in, you know, 15, 20 years from now, um, you know, so that, that those are things to be aware of, you know, even though you go into something thinking that it is anonymous, it may or may not truly be anonymous to your child in the future. Um, and so uh, that that's just something to be aware of. And we all know in our field, there's no guarantees with what we do, but kind of compare and contrast kind of the uncertainty with donor eggs versus donor embryos as far as the likelihood of outcomes. So with donor eggs, those women have been screened with the intent of what is the highest chance that our patient is going to get a pregnancy using those eggs. There's always the unknown of whatever comes with the the sperm component of it, but generally the egg, which is more influential in the success of a, a an embryo in a pregnancy, you know, that has been screened for the highest maximum chance of pregnancy in that couple. When you're looking at a donor embryo, that originates in a couple that had difficulties getting pregnant for some reason. And so what you're looking at is sometimes very you know, benign reasons. For example, someone got their tubes tied or partner had a vasectomy and they realized, 
oh, we, we actually really still wanted more kids. So they went and they did IVF and they created more embryos. That is a very different story than someone who has poor egg quality or poor sperm quality or something that has effects down the line in the success of that pregnancy. And so with a donated embryo, you have the inherent risk of, well, what was causing the couple to have difficulties getting pregnant in the first place? And you also have the attendant risks of, you know, that uh, the woman providing eggs may have been 38 years old, 40 years old. Um, You know, even if her partner had a vasectomy and she's 40 years old, that's very different than someone who had a vasectomy who the woman is 30 years old. And so the success rates are going to vary as you're looking couple by couple. So every single donated embryo is going to have a different kind of success profile behind it. And also realizing, I mean, I've used donor embryos before that have been created with donor egg and partner sperm, you know, which ought to have fantastic chances of success. Um, But also realize that the embryos that have already been transferred were the usually the highest quality embryos. So it's not that the embryos left may be poor quality, but just kind of be aware that even though there was success before, that doesn't guarantee, and unfortunately, in any of the things we're talking about, it, it, it doesn't guarantee pregnancy or necessarily a child. One other point to consider, too, I think, that I mentioned to a lot of my patients, you know, I think the trend now for most of us, maybe not all fertility centers, but a lot of fertility centers, is to do pre-implantation genetic testing on embryos. And we know even in younger patients, that can significantly bump pregnancy rates if we know that this beautiful embryo that we see has also been screened and we know it's genetically normal. And so I think the problem that we have, at least in the embryos that we have available, donor embryos that we have available, many of those have not been screened genetically. So even though they may come from a really young woman, there's still you know, a 50-50 chance that they may be genetically abnormal. And unless you know they've already been tested, there's no way we're going to know that. So occasionally we're lucky to have embryos that have been tested, um, you know, ahead of time. And we know that it's a genetically normal embryo. And certainly if we use egg donor eggs, then couples can choose to test their embryos genetically, which, you know, in most situations would give them a better chance. But also know that you can choose if to have embryos that you decide to use tested, that just because they are cryopreserved does not eliminate the opportunity. We prefer to just have an embryo frozen and thawed once. Um, However, you know, if you're getting a lot of embryos, say you're getting four or five embryos and you're really wanting to maximize the chances of you getting that pregnancy the first time, that thawing those embryos and doing PGTA on them is, is not outside of the realm of reasonability. That is true. Any, any additional thoughts that you have, Carrie? I think we've about covered the topic of treatment. Yeah, I think, I, I think we've gotten it. All right. Anything else, Susan? Any additional words of wisdom that you have? No, go with your heart. Yeah, and I think, again, it's kind of like we've talked about before. It's one of those things, I think, that initially with premature ovarian failure, when you first find out that you have it, I think it's really hard for people emotionally to kind of come around and go, yeah, I want to conceive with a donor egg or a donor embryo. I think you know, for some people, it's very heartbreaking to find it out. For a lot of people, it's very heartbreaking. And I think it's just like a process, anything you go through in life, it just takes a little time to think about it and decide that this is what you want to do. I think it's good to talk to a counselor just to talk about the pros and cons and, you know, certainly communicate with your partner as well. And, you know, it's just, 
you know, I, I wouldn't say if you know if you decide today it's not right for you, it can change over time, and we all we all realize that. I will say for some of my patients who are in the midst of figuring out what they want to do, instead of putting them directly on birth control, what the, what I'll do is I'll put them on an estrogen alone regimen with just a monthly course of progesterone because that estrogen is going to drop their FSH levels and give them maybe a little bit better chance of if they're going to spontaneously ovulate, letting that happen. Um, and sometimes that's helpful for people to get symptom relief while they're getting time to think about what they want to do without going straight to birth control. I think birth control is much easier for people, but, um, but you can do those estrogen only regimens with a cyclic progesterone to maintain their uterine health, give them a more ideal chance at pregnancy, even though, as Susan said, you've got about a five to 8% chance of a spontaneous pregnancy. So you work with what you got. Um, but that can be helpful in the interim. All right. Well, good discussion today, ladies. Um, And to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions about your infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segments. Don't hold back. We love to hear all of your questions and ideas. All right. We'll talk to you guys soon. Have a wonderful week. Bye. Bye. Bye.